G'day, everyone. So glad to be back with you. Thrilled to be back with you. I, I was just thinking, this is the fourth time that you guys have been gracious enough to have me back, and it's quite a mystery to me, you know? And then I was thinking, maybe your immigrant quota was a little low with guest speakers, and so uh, you wanted to feel truly international, so you just keep inviting the Aussie back. And uh, if you keep inviting me, I'm just going to keep coming. That's what's going to happen, all right? I just need you to know that. You just need to know that. So uh, I was here in February, and um, since then till now, uh, we planted two churches. And uh, yeah, thanks. It's really been, it's really been so much fun. Um, <clears throat> so we planted two churches on Easter Sunday in Nashville, in Tennessee. Uh, the most unreached people group in America is uh, 20-somethings, people in their 20s. It's never been lower number of 20-somethings in church than there is today. And there are 100,000 college students in Nashville. And uh, 60% of them choose to stay after they graduate from school. So there is this ballooning number of 20-somethings that are in that particular area of the country. And so while other churches are not sure what to do with them, we are just going to run towards them. And uh, we planted a couple of churches right in the center of a concentration of these 20-somethings. And to our delight and to God's glory... Uh, our church is getting filled up with people in their 20s. So this has been really, really great. So we're having a ball. And I need you to know that uh, our church, Church of the City and Northridge, our stories are being woven together. There's an amazing family that attends here. And at Easter, they said, instead of being served on Easter, we want to come and serve. And so a mom and a dad and five kids got in their minivan and drove in, in bad weather and traffic. It took them 12 hours to get to Nashville. Then they helped us set up, and then they served in the children's ministry. Then they tore down. Then we moved across town. They helped us set up. They served in the children's ministry, and then they tore down. They worked about 14 hours straight. Then they jumped back in their minivan, and they drove back here. You people are amazing. I mean, really, it's been incredible. 
And uh, there's, there's another couple, last time I was here, a couple in their 20s, who said, uh, we think that we're supposed to quit our jobs and move there and come and join you. And, uh, and I said, have you ever planted a church before? And they said, no. And I said, me either, come join the party, you know? So they came with us as well, and they're highly, highly involved. And then there's a girl who grew up here. Uh, her name is Lauren. She's a, a musician, and she was already living in Nashville, but had just moved there. And we connected here last time I was here. And uh, she has taken a particular interest in my daughters. I have three daughters. And um, she's taken a particular interest in my daughters. And this past week, she took out Sydney, my oldest, for, uh, for her birthday. And they just spent the day together. And I was just thinking as I was coming here this weekend that you raised Lauren, you raised this girl by pouring into her, and now she is pouring into my daughters, and I just need you to know that I am so grateful for you. So thank you so much. So it's been great. All right, if you brought your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the book of Jonah. We are gonna go to one of the most iconic stories in all of the scriptures. I mean, people who've never been to church in their life know the story of Jonah. They know about the bloke. He got tossed into the sea, swallowed up by a fish, spent three days there, and then spat out again. Like, they, they know that story. In fact, as I was uh, traveling here, I brought my four-year-old daughter with me. Her name is Scarlett, or you might call her Scarlett. And... Um, <laughs> So, so she's come with me, it's her first trip ever with Daddy, and we're on the plane together, and in, just in preparation, she's reading the story of Jonah in a children's Bible on the plane, and uh, so she's got it open, and she's looking at the big fish and all that, and some bloke sitting next to us says, um, what are you reading there, sweetie? And she says, it's the story of Jonah. And he goes, oh, is that the one where the guy gets swallowed by a fish and all that? And she said, yeah, that's it. He said, do you really think that happened? I'm like, thanks, mate. Yeah, so doubt into my child. I appreciate that. And uh, she goes, well, yeah, I do. I learned about it in church. And he goes, really? He said, well, how are you going to prove to me that that actually happened? And my little girl thought for a while, and she said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see Jonah. I'm going to ask him. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? So then he said, well, what if he's not in heaven? And she said, well, if Jonah's not in heaven, then you can ask him. At least that's what she should have said. All right. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So if you don't know the story, real basic, God says go to Nineveh and give him a prophecy uh, Jonah says, no way. He goes in the opposite direction geographically to the city or towards the city of Tarshish. He's on this boat. A storm comes up and he says, listen, mate, it's my fault. If you throw me over, everything's going to be fine. So they say, okay. So they throw him over. And then in verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Bible then says he is vomited out. That is the that is the version, that is the word that the, the Bible uses, quite explicit, thank you. Then uh, he reluctantly goes to Nineveh. Then he gives the most unconvincing, half-hearted prophecy. And he says this to Nineveh in uh, Jonah 3 verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now all throughout the Old Testament, prophets 
were known for giving these really intricate metaphors. Sometimes prophets would roll around on the ground and they would say, this is what will happen if you do not repent. Some would give these long articulate oracles with, with poetry talking about impending judgment if you would not turn from the way you're living. So people would say, you know, you have raised up idols, you have betrayed your history, you have turned against your people, you've turned against God. These are, these are sort of the prophecies that are littered all throughout the Old Testament. Jonah's prophecy was the weakest prophecy in the history of the world. It's so unconvincing. He says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Then he says, I'm out. I mean, this was really weak. So imagine his surprise in Jonah 3 verse 6. It says this, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. No one was more surprised than Jonah when he completely phoned in this prophecy and the entire nation just falls to its knees. The king of Nineveh repents, he issues a national decree, and he calls on everyone to fast from food and fast from water, and they, and they repent from the way that they've lived. Then in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, there are only four chapters in the book of Jonah. I have just summarized for you the first three. And that's the story as we know it. If you're reading through a children's Bible, then that's where the story ends. That's what happens. If you're watching Veggie Tales, that's what happens, right? But you see, the biggest twist is about to happen. The biggest twist in this story, you may not even re have read chapter four before. The first three chapters is the narrative to there, but chapter four, right at the beginning, is the biggest twist in the whole story. Verse one of chapter four, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What? This was an extremely effective prophecy. He did a really bad job of it, and Nineveh goes, listen, mate, you're right. We need to repent. And Jonah's angry. Verse two, he prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. You see, now we see why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. He's looking at God and he's going, I knew you would do this, God. I knew you're gracious and compassionate and I knew you'd be slow to anger and I knew you'd be abounding in love. I mean, you know, don't those characteristics of God really irritate you? He's compassionate and he's loving. He's patient, he's slow to get angry. Don't you hate that about God? Obviously something's going on. There's some Something that's going on behind the surface. I mean, Jonah's suicidal. He says, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. He wants to die because his prophecy was so incredibly effective. Somewhere in the text here, 
we realize that Jonah didn't want God to forgive Nineveh. He didn't want him to. The issue is one of forgiveness. Now, forgiveness makes me think of something that happened with me 15 years ago when I got my first ever job as a youth pastor. Someone trusted me with their teenagers. And I would always try to use really creative illustrations. I would try to use... um, you know, different kinds of things that would help make a story come to life. I never actually brought in a waterfall, but I really would have liked to have. So this is the fulfillment of a dream. But, uh, but seeing your, uh, your fireplace here reminds me of something. There was a, back 15 years ago, I was speaking on the topic of sex and uh, some guy just woke up at the back there. Yeah, <laughs> welcome back, thanks. So, um, so I'm talking about sex and I'm, I'm helping teenagers understand that sex outside of the parameters, the safe parameters that God has designed for us, uh, can really cause damage. And I said, you know, if you get in an environment where you're alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it's late at night, so that is like a highly flammable situation. You could end up making a decision that you will regret if you're in a situation like that. And I, and I said, it's a little bit like, and I have one of those little fire lighters, you know those fire lighters you snap off and just had it sitting on my table here, and I just lit it. It was about a three-inch flame. And I thought, well, that looks pretty cool, you know? In the book of Proverbs, it says, can a man scoop fire in his lap and not be burned? I said, so let's see. You know, so I'm, I've like got this little thing burning there, and I said, you know, when you stay in a situation, alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend, late at night, that is flammable. It's a little bit like, and I had this, this cup of kerosene, which seemed like such a great idea at the time, and I, and, I got it, and I just tipped it on top of this thing, right? And it just splattered everywhere. And all of a sudden, the entire table was on fire. This was not how I thought it would go. And then the kerosene started dripping off of the table, and it was, it was on fire. And then it came down on the stage, and so the stage was like starting to smolder, you know? So I just pretended that this is what I meant to do. And uh, so I'm like putting it out, and I'm going, yeah. And when you stay in that situation, things can, can get hot. And things can even get out of control. And the flames are just getting higher and higher. And I'm thinking, I don't want to need to do it. I need to grab this towel. I had a towel with me that was on stage. And I thought, I'll just throw this towel on top. So when I was planning this whole thing earlier, uh, I spilled kerosene everywhere and I mopped it up with uh, this towel. So I grab this towel and I throw it on top of the flames. And there was like a fireball that went up to heaven, you know? And I was just astonished. My eyebrows are singed. Like, it's just going crazy, you know? So the whole thing was on this big metal tray. So I just like, it was really getting big. And so I like lifted the tray off and I I didn't know what to do, you know? So I just like threw it off the stage onto the floor of our worship center. And, uh, and then when I looked down, the, the unique thing about our stage is that we had this curtain that was all the way around the front of the stage. I am not making this up. The curtain caught on fire. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a really bad day. So I look down and, and the carpet is now like burned all the way through to the cement. Of our, like This is like replace the carpet in our worship center kind of event, Right? So then, uh, the whole place is filling with smoke, and, uh, and I couldn't keep like, going, I meant to do this, you know? I'm like, yeah, and 
You can do really a lot of damage when you don't make good decisions, you know? And I said, I'm gonna need some help up here. And some kid at the back goes, we're gonna die. And everyone starts screaming. So then someone runs up and they start jumping and all of these leaders and everyone starts to put the thing out. And all of a sudden it's just smoldering with smoke in the room. And I continue my sermon, right? Well, the next morning, a senior pastor wants to meet with me. It's the first, first, I'm glad you think it's funny. Uh, the first ministry job that I have ever had. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking he's either gonna think this is really, really funny or I'm fired. So uh, I go in there and he's sitting at his table and he looks over his table at me and he goes, um, that was a really irresponsible thing to do. And I said, I'm so sorry, you know, like I was really trying to make a point, you know. And he said, um, he said, I'm gonna have to give you something. And he leaned behind him and from the fire station, he got a helmet and got my name put on it. <laughs> and he handed me this thing and he looked at me and he said, oh, those teenagers are never going to forget that illustration. <laughs> so six months later, a senior in high school comes running up to me. I mean, I'd forgotten about it, kind of. So uh, he comes running up to me and he says, Darren, I need to talk to you. The other night I was alone with my girlfriend late at night and then I remembered the fire and I just got out of there. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that's effective youth ministry. That's what it is. So be very aware of what I can do with these things here. Um, but I experienced forgiveness and I'm to this day so grateful as the carpet was being replaced, um, I felt very grateful for the forgiveness of, uh, of my senior pastor. There is something that is going on in this story about Jonah that we don't know. Something that doesn't make the Bible cartoons, something that we kind of skip over and generally, it is, this is not in the text, it's actually in the context. There's a backstory that is going on here where you need to understand Jonah's relationship with the people from Nineveh. There is some sort of history that we are unaware of in this story. And I wanna share a little bit of that with you so it will help you get a fuller understanding of what's going on here. A pastor friend of mine put me onto a historian by the name of Dan Carlin and much of what I'm gonna share with you is his research. Now Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Assyria was one of the first empires in the history of the world and it lasted almost 2,000 years. The reign of the Assyrian Empire was unmatched and they were also unmatched in their cruelty. The Assyrians ruled by fear, oppression, intimidation and terror. Dan Carlin calls the Assy that he says that the Assyrians invented terrorism. Every empire that followed the Assyrians copied the cruel, barbaric practices of the Assyrians. And their kings were known for bragging and boasting about their cruelty and about their exploits. So if a nation rebelled against the authority of the empire, they made an example out of them. Now, I wanna give you an example of this. There, is a, uh, a, there was a king who ruled from 883 to 859 BC. His name was uh, King Ashurnasirpal. There's actually a picture of him here. He has the mother of all goatees, if you'll notice that. Now, this guy was so cruel. So, uh, so a nation dared to rebel against him, and this is what he did. Here's a direct quote. This is what he's saying. 
I built a pillar over the city gate and filleted all the chiefs who had revolted and covered the pillar with their skin. Some I impaled on the pillar on stakes. Some I bound the stakes around the pillar and cut the limbs of the royal officers who'd rebelled. Many captives among them I burned with fire. I took some living captives and cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many, I put out their eyes. These are the ones living. When a city tried to revolt, the Assyrian Empire made an example with such disproportionate force that it impressed such fear upon the entire empire that if you dare to even think about a revolt, you, your children, your children's children, everything you've ever, been, you've ever owned will be destroyed. Dan Carlin says that when a city would try to revolt, they would do what is comparable to a nuclear bomb, except they'd do it by hand. They would decimate a city. They would kill the livestock, torture and murder the children, set buildings on fire, tear up crops and plant thistles and weeds in their crops so that nothing could grow there. Then they would spread salt all throughout the soil. In some cases, they would even go to the effort of diverting an entire river so that it would absolutely destroy, remove everything. There would be no structure, no living creature, no trace of anything. They would make an example and then they would laugh and they would brag and they would high five and the message to the empire would be clear. If you dare to resist, if you try to revolt, you will pay. Now just think of a couple of thousand years of this kind of brutality. But the Assyrians reserved a special kind of brutality for the Jews. This was one that was more, more painful and more subtle. Because the Jews had such a strong sense of ethnic heritage and identity, the Assyrians decided not to obliterate the race, they decided to dilute them. So they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, they forced the Jews to marry Assyrians. Then they had babies and they produced this half Jew, half Assyrian race. Now this generation was disowned by both groups. The Jews especially hated them. They were like, how dare you take our heritage and mix it with the Assyrians, those barbarians, the enemy. You should have been willing to die than mix Jewish blood with Assyrian blood. They hated this group of people. Now this half Jew, half Assyrian race became known as the Samaritans. Now as you know, the Samaritans make several appearances in the New Testament and they're always an example of those who were hated, oppressed, and marginalized. So the, so the Assyrians were unmatched in their cruelty and their tyranny. And now you can see why Jonah hated the Assyrians so much. You can see why he hated those who lived in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. God forgiving Nineveh was unthinkable. And Jonah was furious about this. He didn't want Nineveh to repent. He didn't want them to be forgiven. He wanted them to get what they deserved for all of the heinous cruelty that they had done to other people. Now Jonah is at the point where he is so upset, he wants to be killed. 
He would rather die. Kill me, God. I would rather die than be known as the prophet who helped the Assyrians, who helped those who live in Nineveh get off scot-free. Dan Carlin calls this group the biblical era Nazis. My wife and I were in Nuremberg, Germany a few years ago. And we stood right where Adolf Hitler held his Nazi party conventions, also known as the Nuremberg rallies. Now what if after annihilating six million Jews, Hitler came to God and he said, you know God, upon some deep reflection, I don't think I should have killed those six million people. And now I'm feeling bad about it. And I'm sorry. And to prove that I'm sorry, I'm going to fast from my food. I'm going to ask other people to fast as well. And then I'm going to put on sackcloth and some animal skin. So are we okay now? And then God says, hmm, let me think, Hitler. Uh, you killed six million people. Now you're feeling bad. So you're not going to eat, and you're not going to drink for a while, and uh, you're going to put on some animal skin. I think we're good. I think that that's fine. You're free to go. No consequences. That's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. Jonah is infuriated. This is not how the world is supposed to operate. I mean, we feel like the world should largely operate under the basic premise of the Buddhist principle, karma, where if you do something good, you get a positive outcome. If you do something bad or something evil, then you should be punished. You should get what you deserve. That's the equilibrium of the universe that makes sense to us. But God says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways. And the unrighteous, their thoughts, let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts are infinitely higher than our thoughts and our ways. People getting what they deserve seems right. But God says forgiveness is even better. On the 2nd of October in 2006, you probably remember this, a 32-year-old guy named Charles Roberts went into Nickel Mines, this little town in Pennsylvania, and he busted open the door of a little Amish school, a little one classroom school and with a gun he opened fire on 25 horrified little children many were wounded and five little girls were killed the story captured the attention of the world and by the next morning 50 television networks had descended upon this small town in Pennsylvania And they stayed for five days until the killer and these five little girls had been buried. This killer, as you know, took his own life. And what was interesting is after leaving the funeral of their own children, the Amish community attended the funeral of the killer. 
the killer's widow and her children, as they walked in, were greeted by the parents of the five daughters and comforted by them. And if that is not astounding enough, the grieving parents of these five little girls helped establish a fund, a special fund that would support and take care of the killer's children. Within a week of these murders, the response of the Amish community was more of a prevalent story than the incident itself. More than 2,400 stories around the world had the title Amish Forgiveness in them. The media was astounded by the enormous, outrageous forgiveness of the Amish community. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I had a good friend who grew up in a really dysfunctional environment. His mother was a drug addict. When he was two and a half years old, his dad just split. He got out of there. For the next year, he was raised solo by his mother. But one day, a babysitter found bruises all over this little boy. And they realized that his mom had been uh, physically abusing him. So he got put in, in foster care and was so grateful for the way that families would open up their homes to embrace kids who don't have a place to go. When he was telling me this, he said, you know, when I would start to get connected to a family, I would end up getting moved to another family and then another family. And he said, I was just an angry kid. And all throughout middle school, he was just ferociously angry. And all throughout high school, as he started to become a man, he was capable of doing more damage. And he was just someone who had a smoldering anger. When he was in high school, his mother died of a drug overdose. So his only living parent was his dad who abandoned him. And he had this smoldering hatred towards his dad. When he was in his late teenage years or even when he was 20, someone invited him to church and he had this encounter with Jesus that he did not see coming. He gave his life to Christ and the spirit of God started to fill him and, and genuinely started to transform him. So one day he decided, I need to go meet with my dad. He said, I have experienced so much forgiveness from Jesus from the kind of life that I have lived. I just wanna extend forgiveness to him. I used to hate him and now I love him and I can't even describe it. He said, I wanna release my dad from any shame or any guilt that he may be feeling. So after not seeing his dad for 15 years, he decided that he was gonna jump on a plane and go meet with him. So he looked him up and, and called him and said, dad, I, I wanna meet with you. And uh, he found out that his dad had remarried and started another family and his dad, full of shame, said he'd meet him at the airport. So they jump on a plane and as he's heading out, he sees a guy in, in, the, in the plane that he knew and he gave him his camera and he said, I'm about to see my dad for the first time in 15 years and I used to hate him and now I love him. And the first thing I wanna do when I see him is I just wanna, I wanna hug him, I wanna release him of any shame 
or of any guilt that he may have. I just want to give him forgiveness. And I said, well, what happened? He goes, it was unbelievable. He said, this guy took a picture of us. I said, well, that must be an amazing picture. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you want to see it? And I said, yeah, I want to see it. And he shows me this picture. I, I brought it. I want, to, I want to show you. Look at the Look at the levity in the faces of these two estranged men. And I'm looking at this picture. And I said to him, this is so beautiful. And I thought, this may be the most powerful force in all the world. This force of of reconciliation and of forgiveness, this outrageous display of, of, of grace and kindness that has come from someone experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus and then extending it in really an unthinkable way. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I heard someone say once that forgiveness is relinquishing my right to hurt you back after you have hurt me. When we forgive, we join with the nature of God. Forgiving is acting like God. You are never more like God than when you forgive. The greater the wound, the greater the forgiveness, and the greater the reflection of the nature of God. God wants us to know that there is a better way to live. But what no one ever tells you about forgiveness is, It doesn't feel good, at least to begin with. You have to absorb something. And when you forgive someone, you wrestle with this sense of injustice. Now, am I really gonna let them just get away with this? Am I really gonna let them just like walk away scot-free, no consequences for what they have done? The more that you have been hurt, the more that you have been betrayed, the more difficult this is gonna be. Really? I'm just gonna let them off? There is such a a stirring of injustices inside of you and someone has to absorb that pain. Think about when Jesus hung on the cross for our forgiveness. He absorbed the pain. To make a way for forgiveness, to make a way for us to be reconciled to the Father. And and when you make a way for forgiveness, when you forgive someone, it, it doesn't feel great to begin with, but something happens as you step into this. See, that's the second thing, is that forgiveness is not a feeling, primarily, it's an action. And it's embedded in the word, forgive. You actually give someone something. It's a gift that you give to someone. You give them grace. You give them forgiveness. You let them off. But what is really interesting is that it sets you free. You probably heard this. Someone said once, um, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. When you forgive someone, you set yourself free. So why is forgiveness one of the the foremost themes of the entire Bible? 
I mean, you think about this, this theme over and over again. Jesus is saying, love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. The story of the good Samaritan or the prodigal son or the woman at the well or showing love to tax collectors and prostitutes, ultimately hanging on the cross. There is this message that God is trying to give us. As you receive the forgiveness of God and as you extend the forgiveness to someone else, you will taste the best kind of life. You will set yourself free. The last thought that I want to give you from this text in verse 3, where Jonah says, Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. God knows that when we don't forgive, and when we are bitter and we harbor anger and resentment, something inside of us begins to decay. Something inside of us begins to die. We actually lose our life. Jonah's saying, take away my life. His unforgiveness already has. When you don't forgive, something inside of you stops living. And God knows that when we forgive, we set ourselves free and we begin to experience the best kind of life. So who do you need to forgive? Some of you have been thinking about someone while I've been talking. And in varying degrees of pain, you're like, yeah, not that person. I'm not that person. Who is it? Is it a spouse or an ex-spouse? Is it a parent or a grandparent or a step-parent? Someone who was in a position of authority who betrayed you? Was it a son or a daughter? Was it a sibling or a family member or a, a, a business partner? a co-worker, a trusted friend? Was it a stranger who hurt you? Maybe you need to forgive yourself. Maybe you haven't forgiven yourself. And today, you need to let it go. I am not suggesting this is easy. And I'm not suggesting that this means that you become best friends with someone who has hurt you. What I'm saying is that you release this. Now the way that you will know that you have forgiven them is when you, don't, you no longer want retaliation and you no longer want them to you know, be cursed. You actually want them to be blessed. Maybe a first step that you could do is you could start praying for them. Pray for your enemies. Pray that God would bless them. See what God does in your heart. Maybe you need to send an email or a text or, or make, a, make an appointment or write a letter or send a Facebook message to someone. And you can use church this weekend as, as the catalyzer. You can just say, hey, I was in church this weekend and I thought about this situation and I just wanna, I just wanna put it behind us. I wanna, I wanna forgive you. I wanna be at peace. I want you at peace. I wanna be at peace. I, I just forgive you. This is over. I'm gonna let it go. 
we're gonna listen to a song. And I just wanna invite you to ask the Spirit of God to speak to you about someone that maybe you need to forgive. And it's probably the one where you're going, nah, not that person. And I'm gonna ask that God would give you the courage and he would give you the, the vision and he would give you the power as you receive forgiveness from Jesus to extend forgiveness to someone else and in doing so, set yourself free. So I'm praying for you during this next song and then we are gonna close our service together. So whether you are here at Plymouth or Ann Arbor Celine or Brighton Howe or online, maybe this is the message that you are supposed to hear to start something that is a step towards your freedom. Maybe you would actually take a step to set yourself free, to forgive. And not just on any kind of power that you can conjure up yourself, but because of the forgiveness that Christ has shown, that he has demonstrated, that he has absorbed, so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Maybe today you've never done that. You have never accessed that kind of supernatural forgiving power, outrageous forgiving power, because you have not made a decision to follow Jesus. Well, today, I wanna invite you to do that. Just a moment, I wanna invite you to pray a prayer where you could say, I wanna access this forgiving power. I wanna give my life to Jesus. On the way in, you would have received one of these. And on the inside, there is a little connection card or connection card. And um, we just encourage you to fill this out. And then you could check this box at the bottom and on the way out, just put it in one of the boxes. Uh, and if you wanna get connected to the rest of the church, then there is a, a special area in the lobby called Starting Point. And we'd encourage you to take a step to actually get connected into community with people here. This church is so much more than a weekend service. It's a community of people doing life together. And if you are embarking on a journey of forgiveness, there'll be people who wanna come around you and support you in that. Let's stand together. We're gonna to close in prayer. Let's pray. God, first of all, I wanna pray for those who are making a decision to receive the incredible forgiveness that you extend to us through Jesus, through the death and the burial and the resurrection. You have absorbed the pain and made a way for forgiveness. And I pray that in this moment that they would surrender their lives, they would repent from controlling it themselves and give up completely to you. And that the kingdom of God would fill their hearts and their minds and that you would enable them to take a new step. I pray that they would pray that prayer now. And for the rest of us who are wrestling with forgiveness and we're thinking of a very specific person and a very specific situation, we pray that you would give us access to that forgiving power that we have received, that we may extend to other people, that we may take a step, a step of courage 
where we embark on this journey of setting ourselves free by releasing them. Give us the power to forgive, God. We know that you want us to experience the best kind of life where we are not tied up in knots, but instead we are free. We are free and we are clear and we are at peace. That's the kind of life that you want for your people and we receive that, God. So I pray that you would give people courage, courage today, courage this week, to make these kind of decisions, to forgive, to give a gift of forgiveness. So that's our prayer, God. We believe that you can answer this prayer and we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Thanks so much for having me with you guys again. Grace and peace. Do this trade world hoping